Hello and welcome to episode 150 of What Most People Think. And it's the 150, guys. It's the 150 up. If this was cricket, I'd be raising my bat to the Barmy Army, saluting the Barmy Army, and but totally focused on getting to the double hundred. Because uh, this is a podcast which lands weekly, you know? That's quite a thing, isn't it? I think since the pandemic, I haven't missed a single week uh, since COVID. Sometimes under huge family pressure. You know what I mean? Sometimes, I, mean, I don't want to big myself up, but sometimes, yeah, I've got up at 6am to do it. You know, sometimes I've been in here while the family are in bed, just chatting shit, chatting shit to keep us all entertained and keep me out of having to pay for therapy because it is therapy for me. So this is a podcast. It's also a podcast without advertising, fully funded by my amazing Patreon community, uh, a podcast which is willing to say things that sometimes they wouldn't say in comedy. Like, for example, I don't know if you saw this week, uh, the Halifax, uh, they've done a social media thing where... They've uh, shown that their staff now have got name tags with pronouns on, right? And the problem with this is, is I mean, obviously, it's just a, another piece of corporate virtue signaling, but the name on the name tag is Gemma, and under under it, it said she, her... I mean, a, a lot of this kind of thing feels like being back doing English in year eight, you know? <laughs> All of us thought we were done with pronouns, didn't we? But, oh, no, there's been, there's been another sort of sting in the tail when it comes to trying to work out what that word means. And I I do think when they study this point in uh, history, you know, in future, they'll go, fucking hell, there's a lot of problems, but they had a lot of time to talk about words, didn't they? They spent a lot of time on words. And just the dumbest thing, and people have rightly picked them up on this, is that one of the clues as to that person's probable pronouns is the name Gemma and whether or not that person looks like a woman. You know, and I I don't mean that, you know, I also include in that, People that are transitioning, that you might think certain aspects of their bi- sort of biological appearance are masculine, but you know they've got long hair, uh, they might have makeup on. You know, there's, there's clues that we've always fucking used. But oh no, the Halifax—they got a little name tag, and and I know that you know people on my side of things get accused of. But well, what does it matter, Jeff? You know why are you getting annoyed? It's just stupid. It's just really fucking stupid. Anyway. Uh, since last week, a lot ha- a lot has happened. There have been the by-election defeats. By-elections. That was only, what, last week? These were big defeats. But Boris, I don't know, Giza's just made a Teflon. It just bounces off of him, doesn't it? He's, uh, you know, like when you first get a frying pan and, and things just slip. It just slips off of this fucker. And before you know it, he's jumping on a plane. He's fist-bumping Zelensky. That'll be his new thing, won't it? Just ever he's in trouble, he's like, all right, fire up the aircraft. Let's go to Ukraine again. Fuck yeah, I guess I'll have to... Get get the flax jacket. I've had another old party gates back. Oh shit, where can we go next? Uh, any other good war zones, lads? Any other good war zones? We're going to be discussing actually a lot. So we'll, we'll save the politics because my guest this week is the brilliant Aisha Hazarika. Aisha, a lot of you be aware of. She's a political commentator. She's worked in politics. Also a comedian. Uh, she's just as you know, she's done one woman shows. She's done had a very interesting career. So I'm going to pick her brain about a lot of things, including. The fact that she was a special advisor during the Miliband years, uh, you know, her job on broadcasting on Times Radio and how you get around issues of bias when you have a clear political stance. So there's a lot I'm looking forward to chatting to Aisha about. Um, just a quick one. We have more Super Patreon. So Super Patreon is, is a voluntary decision whereby you can up your Patreon pledge to over £20. So I've got to say, big shout Going out to Steve Temple. Steve Temple is a good name as well. The Temple of Steve. The temple. Can we give Steve an item? 
the Temple of Doom. <laughs> do, yeah, Steve, if you're listening, maybe you could. You don't have to do it, you know, every week. But if you notice something that's a particularly catastrophizing piece of, of liberal paranoia, Steve, you might be a liberal yourself, but if you know, you know, like these, and we'll talk about it shortly, but people think we're sliding into a fascist state. So, Steve, you could be Steve's Temple of Doom. And uh, we've also got Phil Morgan. Thank you, Phil Morgan, for editing, editing up your pledge. Morgan Stanley, you could do financial stuff. But look, the main thing is, is that once you're a super patron, you're on the board. You're a board member. And that means that if you message me, you'll get a guaranteed response. And, uh, you know, if you've got feedback on things, ideas for guests, you'll be at the absolute top of the pile uh, for all that stuff. So thank you for that support. We also will be mentioning new other new patrons this week as well. Thank you. There were quite a few. So I think... You know, that men's mental health episode really landed. So we will, of course, get the man whisperer, Kenny Marmorella de Cruz, back on again. And also our wellness guru, Matt Marnie. So just before we get into the chat with Aisha, let's have a quick thank you and a fuck you. I just want to say thank you to the England cricket team. I went to the cricket last Thursday at Edinley. And there was a slight, I mean, it was a really exciting test match. And we went on day one. And if you were following the test, you'll know that that was sort of like hands down the worst day to go on. The run rate was like two two point five or something, and in subsequent days it was like double that. And and I have to say that the run rate off the pitch wasn't high either because we're all a group of lads. We go to cricket every year, or certainly we used to, and then the pandemic hit. So we've gone back there, and we haven't really adjusted for the fact that we're all a bit older. So he's like, right, beers in. I mean, we didn't have a beer for the first hour, which is fucking unheard of. And I, I could just hear people throwing stuff at the wall just I'm sorry what can I say I'm sorry yeah we we had a cup of tea when we arrived fuck you um and we got into the beer and and we we, our run rate I'd say was 2.5 it wasn't even that it was about 1.2 beers an hour perhaps we tried to change it up I introduced gin and tonic in the afternoon session that had a little livening effect went back to the beer I mean look don't get me wrong you know we put in we put in a good shift but um, I'd say that we were a few wickets down because one of the lads, you know, when you you know when they scan around the ground at cricket. I remember when I was a kid, they used to show these old geezers having a nap, and I was like, oh, "Look at those fucking old bastards!" Eh? Glad that'll never be us, right, lads? But it was us this time. There was a sleeper. We had a sleeper among the group who around about four p.m. Uh, no, it was in the afternoon. It was about sort of four thirty after we'd had a bit, you know, a bit of food, a few beers. I mean, it's not unreasonable. He just uh, the lights went out for a while, but it, w- it was a real watershed moment for that. But like, oh, we're oh we're the we're that guy now. Um, the fuck you is for people that use fascist and Nazi too easily. So first up, there's been a couple of examples from both sides of the cultural fence here. Um, when we had the jubilee and the uh, Union Jacks were up, you know, in London, there's a lot of people going. Anyone else seeing Nazi vibes here? And you know, only on social media would anybody say yes. You know, in rest of it, and they go, no, I'm, I think it's the fact that the Queen's celebrating the Jubilee. Um, so you have that. And then, you know, recently there's a few right-wing commentators that arranged the uh, the, the pride flag into the swash sticker. And, and, and I just I just don't think it's helpful. You know, you think that you know, gay men weren't that popular under the Nazis. So it's certainly not a comparison that I would be making. Um, but one thing I do think is that, and this is not, it's not like direct anti-Semitism, but it just reminds you that there are different rules at play when it comes to sort of Jewish racism or is that no one would would compare um, compare things that weren't worthy of it to slavery, would they? I mean, people bring up the Nazis all the time, all the time. They bring up was a slide back into Nazism or remind you of anyone and they just draw a little Hitler moustache. 
But you just would never mention slavery. Im- imagine if someone like chose something trivial and re- referred it to slavery. Like say, say Martin Lewis was talking about like being tied in too long to a mobile phone contract, <laughs> and then went and they went, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a you know you, what you don't want to get into is sort of indentured la- labour, like a sort of master slave relationship. Everybody, would be like, whoa, Martin, you're a lovely guy, and I appreciated your your advice on balance transfers and PPI. But you can't be doing that, mate. Get out of showbiz forever, and and you know. We also had this week, this you know the stock Brexit guy, Steve Bray. You'd have seen him on a lot of uh, uh, news over the last five or six years. He just in the background of a lot of interviews goes, "Stop Brexit!" Stop. You know he didn't. It's happened, but he's, he's still there. And uh, recently, he's upped his game. And the thing is, right, people, a lot of people that would defend him say, "Well, you know, he's trying to draw attention." So no, he's not. He's trying to draw attention to himself. There was a period, all right, fine, he's protesting while Brexit was still in the balance. But now the main thing, he's not disrupting Brexit, he's disrupting interviews. And those interviews are with people who both supported and opposed Brexit. So I don't know, what he's become is a massive fucking show-off who who likes attention for himself. And he tried to up the ante by having a... uh, a sort of like a mobile speaker system just so it could be louder and disrupt more shit. And the police, I think it was yesterday, they intervened and they they, they confiscated his his uh, speaker off him. Now, you know, as a rule, um, you know, this whole thing about noisy protests being shut down, not not a fan. You know, it does worry me, this government sort of being, you know, drifting away from lib- libertarian values into sort of uh, highly interventionist policies. But you, there is a line when you go, what is this? So is he, what's the other alternative? J- just forever, he's just going to be there. Because he will. He's got fans. He's had a taste of exposure. He's got like, he's probably got some fucking GoFundMe, you know what I mean? Where if you do that, I mean, I just realised a bloke who does a Patreon is about to knock someone for having a, a GoFundMe. You know, I, I don't know I don't know what his top tier thing is. Is that he'll do shout outs during interviews. You know, it'll be <laughs> it'll be over the shoulder of Adam Bolton just going, Stop Brexit. Big shout out to, to Dave Simpson. Thank you for that very generous pledge. Stop Brexit. Um and that that's the point. I, I, I sometimes wonder if that whole kind of protest bill was passed just so I mean that, I would have to rate that, you know, if the Tories did that, if they passed that whole bill just so the police could nick his fucking speaker off him. Okay, we're going to be discussing stuff like that and much more as we get into the chat with the brilliant Aisha Hazarika. Okay, making a debut on what most people think is uh, my friend, broadcaster, comedian, MBE, uh, Aisha Hazarika. Welcome to the show. Oh, Jeff, it's such an honour to be on your show. I love your podcast. So I was like, where's my invite? <laughs> I know, I did think once I had Ian Dale on, I suddenly thought... Oh my God, uh, I can't believe you had Ian Dale on before me. I mean, I'm not even going to mention that he's been on twice, but there you go. (laughs) You were such such a toady to the establishment, honestly. He he is my my centre right Svengali, uh, but you but you are you're my friend that, that makes the centre left um, make sense to me, or, or, or certainly makes an attempt. Just start off. On, on, I like to. Start, we talk about names on this podcast and how well certain names work. You must be aware that Aisha Hazarika works very well as a name. Well, just as a concept of a name, it scans. It's got like <laughs> Aisha Hazarika. It's almost got a half rhyme between oh, your first nice. name and your surname. I, I have to say, I do li- I do really like my name, even though it does pr- provide a lot of trouble with pronunciation. I think it's one of these names where when you see it on paper, it looks 
quite difficult. It's actually easier than you think. And I have yeah. had some quite great broadcasters really hash up my name like spectacular. Well, you don't have to name names, but what kind of, uh, how have they garbled it? So um, there was quite a woke kind of, I'd say emperor of like woke progressive politics. Um, his name... Radio broadcaster? Broadcaster. Um, his name's very similar to, to someone that was in Game of Thrones. I'll just leave that there, dot, dot, okay, dot. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were at a conference. And bless him, like, he'd been really, really nice to me, but he obviously could, just could not remember how to say my name. And, and towards the end, he was doing this big kind of wrapping up and sort of bigging everybody up. And I could see him doing a run-up at my name, and he tried it about two or three times. And he sort of was like... And a big thank you to... I, I. Asia um, uh, and Anushka um, uh, and then he ended up just panicking he basically said Abu Hamza like he literally just like panicked <laughs> and everybody just like stopped and looked at him he was like I'm so sorry I was like oh my god that's amazing and uh, yeah so but yeah I quite like him and also um, a journalist great journalist uh, Simon Hattonston came to interview me once and he said the great thing about your name is, of course, you had to end up doing comedy because if you put it together, you have ha-ha in the middle of your name, which I thought that's really good. You do. I remember a while ago, we also speculated that if you ever got caught smoking cannabis, your tabloid headline would be, Aisha Hazarika Hazarika. <laughs> <laughs> you also, I, I sort of thought at some point, you've got, to do, you've got to interview Queen Latifah at the Burj Khalifa. Aisha Hazarika interviews Queen Latifah up the Burj Khalifa <laughs> and so on. I mean, we're supposed to be talking serious stuff here, but I just want to get people people's sort of a sense of your political, because a lot of people know who you are, but just a sense of your political orientation. Also, how you grew up, because your name in a way sort of suggests, obviously you've got a Scottish accent, uh, you've got a background that is both Muslim, I think, is it, is it, uh, it's got a Chinese sort of... Indian, but but where well, my family are from? Is there no Chinese stuff there. There isn't. People what? always think I'm Chinese. <laughs> Oh, do you remember Keith Vaz? This is brilliant. I, there is quite a lot of speculation about where I'm from. I always remember Keith Vaz and the Labour Party going, ringing me up, and going, "We're going to do a marvelous visit to your home country. You must come." And I was like, "Oh my god, amazing!" <laughs> And he was like, we'll be at Beijing. Then we'll be going to like Guangdong. And I'm like, Keith, I'm Indian. Like, you should know that. And he was like, oh my God, are you not Chinese? I was like, no, um, no, I'm actually Indian. But I do look like I'm from lots of kind of weird different places. When I was at university, there was this woman who she sort of befriended me. And she started like, I used to have like really, really long, long, dark hair. And it was sort of center parting. And I've got quite sort of high cheekbones. And she was always going, oh, my God, like, tell me all about your background and your people. And I think what the indigenous have gone through is just like harrowing. It's like harrowing. And I was like, OK, thinking I'm from Glasgow. Like, this is a really weird conversation. And as the conversation <laughs> yeah. went on, she was like, and, and what is your like? I mean, I know this is your name, but what's your like tribal name? Is it like? running ha ha or is it mini tp and i was like oh my god i was like do you think i'm red indian i'm just indian and she was like oh my god are you just indian i was like yeah and she's like oh what like, a disappointment. Yeah. Like, i've already got loads of indian friends i thought i was kind of hoping you were red indian to be honest <laughs> dances with the dances with centrists maybe you could have been 
<laughs> it is funny, like that 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 desire you get amongst a certain section of liberal people for what they see to be the exotic. There was um there was a trend online of a lot of kind of fairly middle class progressive girls getting their DNA thing coming through, and so they're all hoping that there'll be sort of African heritage in India, and like it's coming through like ninety seven percent Caucasian white, and they're just like in tears. <laughs> absolutely mortified like the injustice and the reason that one of the reasons we know each other is that we were both signed to the same comedy agent uh back in the mid-noughties there uh called murph control am i really dumb i didn't realize that was a pun on birth control for a good seven years no flies off you so i am really dumb that's a polite um, way of no, saying but it, it. it did like it, it kind of took me a sort of a while and then I sort of then I sort of got it, and it, but the thing about it was so brilliant. It was you know, the guy who runs it is a lovely, lovely man called Jeff Whiting, who's absolutely lovely. And I remember being really absolute one off. Well, I remember being really excited when I signed with like a proper comedy agency, and I think we signed in the car park of McDonald's in his car. It was yeah, yeah. it was like total glamour, like glamour squared, like it's like something out of a film. And um, but I just don't understand why it was like birth control because birth control is like not that funny right (laughs) birth control's got like nothing to do with comedy but anyway yeah that's what it was well he yeah he was he's a guy called jeff whiting and and given a start to so many people in comedy and what he runs and and still runs is uh is is a sort of nationwide network of gigs of of completely varying size so we took you know some big gigs some theaters but right down his kind of ethos is that he'll put on comedy Anyway, I mean, you being a Murph Control Act as well, you'd have run the full gamut. I mean, what was the most sort of like, sort of in the sticks or, or, or kind of bizarre the gig that you did in those days? So I had um, quite a few, um, but you're right. It was like, it was absolutely brilliant, brilliant training. Because as you see, it was like a real mix. Sometimes you get like these amazing gigs, but it was often the really weird gigs where you really cut your teeth as a comedian. And also mm. you just got your best stories. I think my kind of, my funniest one was going to Exeter for a gig and that is a long old drive and of course I was like working as a civil servant at the time I was working at the Department of Trade and Industry so I'd sort of you know finish my day job as a as a press secretary to like the Secretary of State for Business and then I'd be like going to meet some comedians and jumping in a car and driving to Exeter and I remember it was such a long drive I mean it was a good like four or five hour drive and we got there I'm not joking, Jeff. I think there were more of us comedians than there were an audience. There was just like yeah. a sort of a pub. And then there was like some grumpy staff. And there was like literally one man and a dog, like a dog that had diarrhea or something like that, or flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember. I remember. And it was, I was really early on. And you'll remember, you, you remember these days when, you know, Jeff would, would, would try and make an effort to sort of pay everybody, but he didn't have a lot of money. And so sometimes he'd be like, it, it don't worry, it's not a free gig. It's not a freebie. It's a freebie. You're going to get five pounds. <laughs> it's almost worse than not getting any money somehow. Like that. You- I remember once I did an open spot like that, and the guy I was getting ten pounds for a gig in um, Eastbourne, and then the guy gave me a fiver, and then started counting out three pound coins. And then when he went to the fifty p's, I went, Do "You know, mate, you, I really would rather not have this money. This." This feels worse than being some sort of crack whore down an alleyway. Are you like, allowed to say that? I said you that. Said that's that. Not but yeah, it's like someone throwing yeah. coins at you afterwards, basically. You're like, yeah. You're one of those strip clubs where they pass oh, around the point yeah. glass. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do you know, on the note, I had a friend uh, when I was like, when I first got to London, 
and fair play to it. I mean, she just, just she had like a really middle class job. She was doing something very, very middle class and boring. And she sort of, I started doing comedy and she came to see me do some of these sort of gigs. Hmm. And afterwards she said to me, I'm so inspired by what you're doing. I've decided to follow my heart's dream and I'm going to become a stripper. You must come and see me gig as well. <laughs> wow. So there's, there's two things there. All right, stripper, you know, fair enough. That's really. That's not, it's not like, do you know what I mean? My band are doing their first ever gig and it'd be great to see as many familiar faces there as possible. Stripping, it would be better to see no familiar faces <laughs> at all. I mean, you mentioned politics there. Because what happened was obviously you had this comedy thing going and, and, and you were doing really well, but then politics was calling uh, at the same time and then you took on more senior roles there. Just explain to us how that kind of developed. Yeah, so I was a, a civil servant when I started uh, doing stand-up. And of course, as a civil servant, you're very much involved in the running of government but you're, you're apolitical you're not meant to have strong political views that's the whole point of being a civil servant and I was starting to do more and more comedy and I was starting to sort of get asked to do um, bits of tv and, and radio and I could sort of feel there was a an evident conflict on on the horizon and so I just I just sort of thought yeah I'm definitely feeling that I want to be able to a, say more political things. I want to be able to articulate more political thoughts. And also I was becoming, definitely becoming more political as a, as a person. And then um, I started my life when I was in the civil service, basically delivering the post. I was like an admin girl in the press mm. office. And I was like delivering posts like up and down the building. And when I got to the top floors, which was the ministerial floor, I was absolutely fascinated by what was going on there. So I was always like chatting away to people. And I remember delivering posts to these people called special advisors. And I was like, oh, what is a special advisor? Because it's got the word special in it. It sounds great. Mm, yeah, yeah. I was like, what do these people do? And they said, oh, the, you know, and I got this explanation saying, oh, these are really interesting people in politics. They're sort of not really on the front line, but they've got huge amounts of influence because these are the right hand men, mainly men, occasionally women, who advised cabinet secretaries, they helped run the department. And I was like, in that moment, Jeff, I was like, that is what I want to do. Like that sounds. Mm. So, so this is what people might have heard the word SPADS. That, yeah. And that's what, that's an acronym for this, special advisors. Special so, so you advisor. went after that. So I went after that. And then like, I sort of, I'd, I got the chance to work uh, on Tony Blair's election campaign in 2005. And I had to leave the civil service to do that. And I ended up working with Alistair Campbell and like Tony Blair and lots of their team. And it was, Jeff, amazing. It was a really mm. fun, if you're a political geek, this was like winning yeah. the golden ticket. And it was that era, I mean, it was like the last time Labour won an election and it was the last attempt we had at grasping onto everything when it was slightly West Wing before it became completely Green Wing, you know, yeah, and yeah. I was like, it was, it was so interesting. We were zooming around the country. I was basically going around with his like security team setting up events for him and and before like the cavalcade would arrive. And then, you know, it was so exciting. We were like in helicopters. We were like on the night of the election, we were like flying down from um his constituency in the northeast and the in the in like the, the wee hours. It was all so exciting. And I was just like, mm. I've got to work in politics. This is amazing. This is yeah. what I want to do. I mean, that's way better than gigging at a pub in Falmouth, <laughs> isn't it? It's got to be. I mean, why were you even doing comedy at that time? With a flatulent dog. <laughs> With a flatulent... I don't even understand why you were doing comedy at this time. It must have been such a such a gear shift for you, you know, in a helicopter 
in a cavalcade and then in, in, a, in a kind of smart car with some open micers going to Falmouth. What, what, a, what a life. And so what was he, what was he like then, then Blair? Did, did you have that thing of when he, you know he's got this thing of when he says people's names to them. Did you, does that make you feel very special when Tony Blair addresses you by name? He is very charismatic. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about him is that having seen him quite close up, and I just see him very, very close up because, you know, we were, you know, so, you know, when he was like staying in hotels, we were like going in to brief him and, and spending time with him. He is unbelievably charming. He's not like smarmy charming. He's just very, he's always quite upbeat. He's like very self-assured and mm. he's quite fun as well. Like people just want to be with him. He sort of got that, I hate to say that, you know, charisma kind of thing, but you know, even if you have your back to the door, you know when he's walked into the room. He's got yeah. that kind of, there's a sort of crackle in the air, which, let's be honest, we just have not had in left-wing politics for quite some time. I mean, you speak about that magical crackle in the air. So what was it like being in and around Labour Party when Tony Blair transitioned into being Gordon Brown? What, what happened to the crackle at that time? <laughs> kind of... It, the crackle. I mean, Tony Blair didn't transition, by the way. I've, I've said that in a very bad way. They changed. They changed leaders. Breaking news. What did news. the crackle become? Um, Tony <laughs> became Tanya. No. Um, <laughs> the crackle sort of became like a sort of um, like a like a sort of fire, basically. The crackle hmm. became like a sort of electrical fire. Gordon Brown was. Look, I have a lot of time for Gordon Brown. I think when history looks back, they it will judge Gordon Brown like a lot more mm. kindly than you know um, contemporary history did at the time. But Gordon was a very very different proposition. So if Tony and his team, they're like the kind of tanned, relaxed, you know, yeah. a kind of sense of ease, a bit like a sort of you know. It's like a sort of going to the bar at like the golf club. It's all very amiable and things yeah, like yeah. that. Gordon and his team with this, this ball of like stressed out, insecure, imposter syndrome, huge, like wanting to do their best, but sort of hmm. being so frustrated at not quite knowing how to sort of do it. It was like everybody, it was just quite awkward. It was very difficult and it was very tortured. Everybody was kind of fighting with each other within the camp as well. There was a lot of divisions within his team and it was very, very different from Tony. I, I, I guess that was, I suppose, because he'd waited so long and he had such a strong idea of how he wanted to lead and what kind of country he wanted to create. But, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he's anything like Boris Johnson, but getting the keys to power at a time when the shit hits the fan, as he did, you know, and obviously he did great work in and around refinancing the bank, the banks, but whatever plans he had were, were kind of burnished then. And, and also, you know, the expenses scandal, I often say about the expenses scandal, people forget the impact that had on the Labour Party at the time was because obviously all of the parties had their hands in the till, but Labour, I think the, the only people to go to prison were Labour politicians for it. And and it just was, they were the ones that weren't supposed to be like that, I guess. You go to Tories, mm. yeah, I totally imagine that Lord Blenkinslop of East Ryslip would do stuff for his ducks. But, <laughs> you know, this guy that's been on the picket lines, this this guy's taking the piss. I mean, it was damaging, wasn't it? It was it was hugely damaging. And I think, I think there was, I think he, Gordon did have a very, very bad run of luck. But then that is politics, you know. Uh, it, 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 the two things that politicians cannot complain about is bad luck and sadly, a ferocious media because that is just that's just the way things mm. are in, in this country we do have a very um 
sometimes very difficult, but very that's the point of having a, a free press. And bad things happen all, all the time. But I remember with the expenses scandal, it just hit like an absolute train because what would happen is that I was working for Harriet Harman at the time, who was deputy leader, and she was also leader of the House of Commons. So that was dealing with all the MPs and their issues of pay and all that kind of thing. And it was like this absolute kind of relentless nightmare. So at four o'clock, the Telegraph would ring their next victim, like an MP, Labour, Tory, Mm. whatever. So the MP would get a call at about four o'clock from the Telegraph saying, could you give us a call? We've got a story about you tomorrow. And it was like, and then this panic would set in so that the MP's office would like ring our office. They'd start ringing number 10. They'd be ringing the... The, the sort of like, you know, the chief sort of comms person. And we'd be having these like meetings in, in our office in the House of Commons and the like MP would be absolutely ashen faced. And, you know, yeah. we'd be like, did you buy a jacuzzi? And they'd be like, I can't remember, <laughs> I can't remember. And we'd be like, did you buy a massage chair? And they're like, I can't remember. It's really difficult to tell. Please tell me that hot tub <laughs> was prescription, that there was a reason. Is there, is there some back problems we can get out of here, Dave? Like this. Listen, the ducks had sciatica, right? They needed the hot tub. It was incredibly <laughs> important. Like it was, it was a, it was a huge, a huge moment. You know, it's, it's similar. I think Gordon Brown and Theresa May, I put them in a, in a sort of species of politicians whereby, you know, serious public servants, obviously politically very different, but both, had to navigate like a very difficult period. Definitely. And I think also there's this, um, the other thing which was so fascinating about that time is that during the expenses scandal, that is when David Cameron really stepped up. So David Cameron, of course, comes on the scene. He beats David Davis. David Davis was meant to be the front runner and the favourite to take over. Mm. And also it's a reminder that in conservative politics, sometimes the front runner doesn't always, sometimes an unknown can get, get through. Time, yeah. So it's really important to remember that. But I remember David Cameron had sort of been doing a bit of stuff. He was making some head, like he was kind of, you know, getting sort of headlines. But during Hugger hoodie, Hugger the green hoodie, toys, the husky visit. But during the expenses scandal, he did like a press conference every single day. I remember we used to watch it with like hmm. feeling like sick watching him on the TV and he'd be popping up looking all prime minister and he was like, we've got to lead on transparency. Sunlight has got to be the best disinfectant. We've got to clean up politics and... And it was extraordinary to see like a conservative opposition leader absolutely giving it the big one about, you know, nobility and politics and cleaning Mm. up sort of, of course, you now look at what happened with David Cameron and all his lobbying scandal and everything. But you're right. The perception was we expect it of conservatives. We don't expect it of Labour people. And look, I think the left do get judged in a way which is harsher than the right. But unfortunately, Mm. that is the way... It is. It's not fair. It's not nice. But you've got to sort of deal with it rather than just complain about it the whole time. I mean, you talk about the the crackle becoming a fire under Brown. What what did it become under Ed Miliband? Because um, you because you were you were part of that it team, weren't you? Became a Certainly. sort of like aromatherapy steam. I think that's what it. Was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. The thing about Ed Miliband is obviously he had, his, he had issues right from the start. I always thought the fact that the public, hands down, did not see him as prime ministerial. That was one of the biggest problems with, with him. Um, and he, a lot of people said that, look, the thing about Ed, get in a room with Ed, he's great. And I, I thought immediately that reminded me of when a cricketer is not making runs and they go, in the nets, 
He's absolutely smashing it in the in the nets. I mean, how true was that? I mean, like as an up close person, was he a completely different proposition? He was, and it was. It was. I think he did have a very very unfortunate. His sort of political birth as a leader was very very tortured. He was sort of kind mm. of damned right from the start. You know, Red Ed was the huge you know headline from the Sun the sort of second he got elected. And he did have to fight against that. And of course, look, to be fair, he had a very controversial start. He took on his brother. Um, and then, you know, the, there was this perception that he was in the sort of, um, you know, pockets of, of, of the trade unions. And it was very, very difficult. But, but it is true that he, he didn't translate brilliantly on television. And I think that, again, was quite a Gordon Brown thing. T- Tony Blair was very telegenic. He very much did that you know, soft sofa, he could do this morning or news. He could do, he could seamlessly switch from sort of this morning to, to news night to sort of ready, steady yeah. cook. Like that is his kind of, you know, that's, <laughs> that is like. I used to love it when he had a mug of tea with him. <laughs> Always. I was like, like, he, he's, he's just like us. Hi, Look hi, he drinks tea. hi, guys, hi, hi. Um, absolutely. Whereas Ed would be like, Ed would have scalded himself with the tea. Bless him. Ed would have probably dropped the tea down his sort of crotch at this point. <laughs> was going out. <laughs> oh, but Ed was such. So, it was, he's not gone. He's not, he's still with us. Ed is such a nice man. I think one of the things that, one of the reasons Ed ended up beating David was there was two reasons. Ed really, really put the effort in. And I think David Miliband assumed that he was just the natural heir and mm. that he would just sort of take over and didn't, didn't chase every single vote. And Ed absolutely did. And, you know, there was a lot of mythology around that race between the two brothers but even people on David Miliband's team say look if David Miliband had just rung a few more MPs himself and had sort of been nicer to a few more you know really put in that mm. time he, he probably would have would have beat Ed because it was you know it was kind of reasonably close but Ed Simon Hatterson from the Gu- Guardian I think interviewed Ed during the the lead the, the general election campaign and said he was like on loads of trains with Ed because you're always like on trains during an election campaigns, you know, going the whole length and breadth of the country. And he he noted, my God, if this election could be won by people stopping and taking a selfie with a leader, then Ed Miliband's mm. going to have an absolute landslide. But of course, that's not how elections are won, sadly. But it was weird. This really weird thing happened during the, the election campaign. You probably don't even remember it. Ed Miliband suddenly became kind of a bit hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Millie, a lot of people crushing on oh, it. Yeah. Like it was like Ed became like a sort of weird sort of thirst trap, like a sort of non-alcoholic herbal thirst trap. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he like a sort of kombucha, political kombucha thirst trap. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like this thing called Millie fandom like kind of became mm. a thing and I'd be, be out Up there with Clegg, Clegg Mania, <laughs> Clegg Mania went, went well. <laughs> and we'd be out walking along the street and normally like people would just sort of like not really care about Ed Miliband but suddenly like all these really attractive women were like oh my god like switching their hair and Ed was like oh yeah. <laughs> and they were like oh my god it's like Ed Miliband he's like oh and it was just like oh my god this is so weird and we just got all this fan mail coming in that like, all these people would be sending the messages and my funniest message was this woman who messaged him saying, oh my God, please get this message to Ed Miliband. I love him so, so much. He really, really turns me on. He really gets me hot under my hijab. <laughs> hot, under my, hot under my hijab for Miliband. Yeah, I just thought, <laughs> this is just such an Ed Miliband-like sex but- tweet, isn't it? 
I mean, talk about politics. So you're in and around sort of Miller band, prepping him for PMQs, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it can be a, a frustrating thing to watch for the public. How frustrating is it is when you breathe somebody and they just don't hit all the important beats or stuff and like literally he, they're challenged with something and you'd spent the morning going, if they say that, say this, and they don't say it. It's, inc- it's like unbelievably frustrating. I used to sort of feel like a football manager, like watching, because yeah. because <laughs> in um, I felt like I, I felt like I needed to have like a sort of puffer jacket on and be chewing gum very very aggressively, <laughs> yeah. something. But so in the House of Commons, um, in terms of where you sit, so there's this there's this press gallery which is sort of um, it's in the balcony above the chamber, so you're sort of looking down into the chamber, and all the spinners sit on sort of they we have like one corner the sort of the government spinners and the opposition spinners so the two opposite Mm. teams are sort of sitting in corners in the press gallery and what's really what's really difficult is that you've got to try and keep a poker face because all the lobby journalists the political journalists are are obviously looking to you to signify Mm. whether your man really or woman aced it or fluffed it and I've got a really expressive face. So sometimes like, <laughs> if Ed like really like fluffed the lineup, I'd be like, oh, like pulling like a massive face and like my kind of team would be with me, like digging me in the in the elbows going, shut up, like stop it basically. So talk about the current incumbent. A good example of that is Starmer recently did that extended riff on a Star Wars joke, which was, I just, I mean, you've been in that situation. How the hell does like a minute long riff on <laughs> A, a science fiction film from 1977. How does that get through? I mean, because a lot of people say, well, the, the series Kenobi is on Disney+. Plus." So I was like, first up, most of the country aren't watching that, all right? That's one of the big problems with PMQs is referring to stuff no one knows what the fuck it is. Secondly, that the quotes were from the original Star Wars film. So that, that doesn't even fly. I mean... How did you did you ever have that where some people because you because you've got you know you've got comedic uh, uh, chops right did you ever have other spads going Ed say this and you're like I actually do comedy oh my god all that the shit. time all the time and also remember in like so the reason why that joke probably ended up happening is that there's a lot of there's a lot of young boys in politics who end up yeah. getting in the room to sort of coach people for prime minister's questions. And we all know, Jeff, even from our time in comedy, basically mm. a lot of young boys quite like talking about wanking in Star Wars. Like that is like a go-to yeah. sort of thing. And I think kind of, I probably think the wanking material was probably just not quite appropriate. Yeah. Maybe PMQ's late, but certainly not PMQ. Yeah, yeah. Un- uncensored. Yeah, PMQ's late in live sort of thing. PMQ's uncut. But um, I, I, I kind of, I could sort of see like somebody would have had like one idea and then it kind of probably just, escalated and there was nobody to to kind of sense check what was what was going on it is hard though right because I think one of the things that it's very easy to be an armchair critic and having spent years of my life and I wrote a book punch and duty politics the sort of history guide to prime minister's questions very good book available on amazon all good bookshops very much um but like it is those what's they're like they're known as rejoinder so what you have to do in pmqs you have to sort of you have to create two scripts. You create one script, which is asking the questions. And there's a lot of pressure mm. on you because you're judged on what line of questioning you go on. Because a couple of weeks ago, Starmer, this is when Boris Johnson was really kind of on the ropes, like vote of no confidence. And Starmer mm. did six questions on like the NHS. Now, a very worthy topic, the NHS, right? No one is saying the NHS mm. is not important, but politics is also a blood sport. You know, you've got the prime minister, 148 of his own side who just voted against him. 
And, you know, it was like Starmer was too scared to sort of go in and, and throw a punch. And so you get judged on the questions that you ask, but also you've got to shadow box. You've got to think, right, what is he going to throw back at me? And I need six rejoinders. I need to kind of think of every attack line that Boris Johnson's mm. going to make or whoever's going to make on me and have to have these rejoinders. Some of them can be serious. Some of them can be funny. I mean, humor tends to pack a good punch, but it can't just be like a stupid joke for the sake of it. So for example, that Star Wars thing is just a bit random. The best political jokes are not the biggest, ha ha ha, oh my God, these mm. are so funny, but they, they work. A, there's a very low bar for humor in the House of Commons. It's a bit like it's a bit like attractiveness. <laughs> like basically the bar is very, very low. Yeah, yeah. Or a hot teacher. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, you know, the, the, the sort of hundred hot politicians, like in, in any normal thing. You'd well, be look, like... we've just spoke about Ed Miliband having <laughs> a, a fangirl movement. So I think I think that that says it all. Um, like you... Did you? Did you suffer from like as well, you know, I'd imagine given it's such a boy heavy thing, even though you'd done comedy, you would raise reservations about jokes and, and, and you know, have to push harder than these lads that had never done comedy to get oh, your yeah, point Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. I mean, I, I did a whole stand-up show about my time in politics being the only woman in the room. And one of the things, because I, I fought really, really hard, you know, making my way up from the post-room girl to becoming a sort of a mm. senior special advisor. And you get in the room and it is just all boys and they all look the same. They all sound the same. They've all gone to the same school. They've all studied the same thing at university. They've all married the same woman as well. And they're all called Bob Thomas Simon. So if you're ever in Westminster, you can't remember anyone's. So I used to get like a running commentary from Bob Thomas Simon all the time about kind of humor. And look, the thing you've got to do is, right, nobody is like, I know everything. And you've got to be very collaborative. And look, I'll hold my hands up. I have done my fair share of naff jokes. I did one really bad thing with Ed where I was convinced I had this great joke about Ken Clark getting his like tanks on uh, David Cameron's lawns about Europe I actually was completely mm. right about that and I was like okay you've got to do this joke about about how Ken Clark's got his um, tanks on his lawns and Ed's like but that's not funny I was like I know but the thing that will make it funny instead of lawns we'll say hush puppies because everybody knows that Ken Clark likes wearing <laughs> hush puppies no Aisha nobody knew that Ken Clark likes wearing, apart from absolute geeks like you so I made Ed Miller and to be fair to Ed Ed was like well, honestly I'm not sure about this I just, I was just like, and I was like shut up and just do it all right bitch just get in there and just do the fucking joke and then he did the joke and it literally honestly Jeff it was like tumbleweed and he just looked up at me with horror in his eyes. Oh. Just a note about Starmer and style at PMQs is he's, he's got to get off the notes. I mean, if there's one thing that everybody in his team should be saying is get off the notes because PMQs is, is meaningless, really. It's a test of metal. You know, it's a little battle. And, and Boris, for all his flannel and lies, he communicates in a more authentic way at the dispatch box. Starmer reads almost everything off his notes, including the things that are supposed to look like ad-libs. Well, look, I think to be fair, most, I mean, most politicians do do that, but there's an art to, to doing it well. And there's an art to, to making it look like you're not doing that. And there's a, there is a great, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult when, you know, first of all, there's a confidence thing. I think because Starmer has been a barrister for such a long time and, you know, barristers, they do do a bit of ad-libbing, but their material is very, very well prepared. Mm. It has to be, because if you sort of stray off a very fine legal point, you could be in the doo-doo in terms of like, you know, that's not, it's not great to busk in court. 
And I, yeah. to be absolutely honest, you would not want Boris Johnson turning up being your brief, right? You would be like, oh, yeah, this is not going to go so yeah, well um, in the clink. And I think what is hard for him is going up against Boris Johnson because, okay, I, I'm not just saying this from a, from a biased point of view. I thought Boris Johnson was going to be sensational at PMQs, right? Because he had this reputation. We know oh, on yeah, the after yeah. dinner speaking circuit, he's known as being a great communicator. I thought we were going to be treated to like sort of an hour of like a tour de force of, you know, humor and great rhetorical flourish, you know, oratory. Mm. You know, I thought we were going to get sort of Churchill kind of, you know, plus sort of Steve Coogan kind of levels of humor. With thought, a bit of Giles Brandreth. Absolutely. It. And it's just been, it is, it's insane. I mean, the fact that you've got somebody who his own, his best line of attack against Starmer was to basically say, Jimmy Savile, non, you were like a nonce. That was like, I mean, that is the level of debate. So hmm. I think to be fair to Starmer, it is quite hard going into debate somebody who is so unhinged in terms of where things are sort of going. Ada's just not telling the truth about anything. And then there's, the, there's often no line of argument. But I do agree, what Starmer has got to do is is just be a bit more relaxed. You can over-prepare. Interestingly, I interviewed Angela Rayner for my radio show about Prime Minister's Questions because she actually does quite a good turn when she's up against she's good, Boris Johnson. Good, and yeah. she loves it. Honestly, Jeff, she's the only politician I have ever interviewed who said that they enjoyed Prime Minister's Questions. The only other person was William Hague, who really loved mm. PMQs because... Because even Blair, even Blair was brilliant at it and Cameron and stuff, they they used to give them the fear. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and Blair, Miliband used to get terrified. Absolutely. I mean, Tony Blair said to, to me when I interviewed him that he felt sick every night before PMQs. He couldn't sleep, just couldn't sleep. Angela Rayner loved it. And I said, look, what is your prep ritual? And I, I do believe her when she says this. She says she spends about half an hour on it. She's got a note... She's got her, she doesn't want reams of paper from her team. She asks for everything to be distilled into like one or two pieces of paper. Mm. And then she basically works out in her head and she just goes in and does it. And I think that is very impressive. And I think that is why she is more passionate and it feels like it's less complicated when she does it. So I think Starmer could kind of learn a bit from that. Just interrupting briefly, I hope you're enjoying the chat with Aisha. Just going to say hello to a few more new patrons here. We got Lindsay Batu or Bateau. Lindsay Bateau. I don't know what that name. You just sound like a Radio 4 commissioner. The fearsome Lindsay Bateau, you know. And I, I think Lindsay is a returning patron. So th that does happen frequently as people realise they've been bumped out. So always check if you listen to the podcast, you want the Patreon benefits, but you haven't heard anything for a while. Do give your account uh, a check. We've got Eamon Hale, who I think is another returner i just think about his name he, you you could scan that to amazing grace amen hail how sweet are the amen if any of amen's mates are listening please just sing this to him whenever he arrives at the pub for the rest of his life amen hail uh, we've got matthias worth matthias worth i mean that is just that is just great. I mean, it does seem with your pledge as well that you're listening from the continent. Uh, thank you for that. And I think that with your surname, that's got to be a podcast, isn't it? No watch of worth with Matthias Worth. Hey, guys, hope you've had a good week. And remember, whatever kind of week you had, you did your best. Uh, thank you for your pledge. Uh, Jamie Rose. Jamie Rose. You just you just sound like... What a heartbreaking name that is. I always think the girls kind of like a, a guy called Jamie because you can sort it to Jay. Jamie Rose. Do you know Jay Rose? I bet Jamie Rose, 
has got an older brother who's an absolute fucking brute, right? Who looks like an orc. Uh, <laughs> um, but Jamie Rose just was always a pretty boy, you know. Even even the, even the female teachers were sweet on him when he was fourteen, which was a bit weird. But Jamie Rose, thank you for your pledge. Uh, and Kevin Roche, Kevin Roche, Jamie Rose. Oh my god, Jamie Rose and Kevin Roche out on the pool together. Fucking wingmen extraordinaire that absolutely did devastating work in Magaluf back in the day. Um, so yeah, that is the Patreons. Just just a reminder, I know I've hate, hyped Edinburgh and backstage with Catherine Ryan and the book and all that shit. Just a reminder, a couple of social media bits that I do that some of you won't be following. I am on Instagram, not very good at it. You know, I'm exactly as good as you would expect a 45-year-old man of my political leanings to be. Uh, and I'm on TikTok as well. So I, I do put shorter video clips there uh, if you want to go on there. And I know people say, oh, TikTok, well, you're fucking there doing a bit of light nonsense. <laughs> Oh, God, what an awful phrase. Light nonsense. Let's get back to the chat with Aisha. So we spoke about Angela Rayner there. Speaking of another uh, formidable uh, female figure in British politics, Nicola Sturgeon. I'm going to scratch your head about a couple of sort of hot-button political issues at the moment. Uh, I think it's yesterday she's announced that there's going to be a referendum um, next year. I mean, just on a general point about Sturgeon, is there a case, and I'm, I'm sure that you admire her in a lot of ways, but is there is there a case that the English liberal press have given her an easy ride over the years? Because there's been a lot of poor governance by the SNP uh, in Scotland. There's a lot of paradoxes at the heart of their thinking. I mean, are, are the press, certainly the liberal press, going to have to get their heads around the idea that what she essentially wants it could be deeply destructive. You know, for people that have argued against leaving a successful union to then be kind of egging on <laughs> and Nicola Sturgeon, she does the same. Are we going to see a realignment of, of the kind of coverage that she gets? Well, it's interesting because I think, I think this press, I think the press is quite split over how to deal with, with Nicola Sturgeon. I think there's a couple of things. First of all, there is definitely a truth that I think there are certain, certain sides of the press in Scotland and in England that don't, adequately scrutinise the the many failings of the SNP government. If you look at educational standards, drugs deaths have been absolutely horrendous. Um, in Scotland, there's been a big issue with ferry contracts. There's, there's a lot. Scotland is not a sort of mythical utopia where there are no social issues. They have many of the same, Scotland has many of the same very pressing issues that, that England and indeed Wales does. And sometimes it does feel that the the dominance of the constitutional question means that no other topics get get a good hearing. However, on the other hand, you do have to be, I think, acknowledging of the fact that Nicola Sturgeon is still unbelievably popular in Scotland. If you mm. look at her share of the, the vote, if you look at the SNP's share of the vote, I mean, we've just had local council elections and while while Boris Johnson's argument was that well listen you know governments you know have been in power for this long it's impossible for them to do well in in, in elections not true of the SNP you know they are kind of going mm -hmm. from strength to strength and it looks like at the next general election they'll get even more Westminster seats if that is you know even sort of you know it, Scotland is practically a one party state and that is. So I think you have to acknowledge that she is a good leader. I mean, part of being a good leader, we just talked about many people that I've worked for that could not win power. Lovely individuals, wonderful human beings, great hair, mm. lovely. They can't win power. She, the SNP has been very good at, at acquiring and retaining power. And that is a very important part of politics. But I do think the mood is going to kind of shift now. 
But because of Brexit, Brexit is re- Brexit has kind of che- has sort of shaken the kaleidoscope on things. Because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. If you are if you are arguing that a union is the best thing, that the e the European Union was a really good thing, it's been a disaster since Brexit. Why would you logically argue that breaking up the UK is a good idea? You are talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol being a problem. Great. You want to reproduce that at the Berwick border? Is that seriously what you mm. what you want to do? However, because of Boris Johnson and Brexit, the argument also cuts the other way. There's a kind of bloody mindedness now with a lot of people that support independence who hate Boris Johnson so much. They hate Brexit so much. They hate the intransience with which the SNP is dealt with at Westminster. So their view is, fuck it. If you guys got the chance to leave and wreck and break everything up, we want that right too. I mean, there's also been an inaction, you know, Ian Blackford, who, you know, there's history with him and his treatment of Charlie Kennedy, you know, and then recently we've got his conduct in and around this sort of sexual harassment case. I mean, he's like, if she was a really strong leader and wanted to show that she wasn't, the SNP weren't getting dragged into the same murk as the Tories, surely, I mean, the good thing is if she ever sacked... Ian Blackford, instead of saying, this is a real kick in the teeth for Scotland, as he always says, he would then have to say, this is a real kick in the teeth for me on this occasion. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, is there an argument for that he should be fired after these recent revelations? Well, I mean, I don't think I don't think they've handled I don't think they've handled things brilliantly at all. I mean, this guy has now stepped aside. He's he's sort of sitting as 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 an independent. And I I don't think the SNP have handled things um, brilliantly. I think, sadly, every single political party has got a horrible stain cast over it by allegations of sexual misconduct. The Labour Party Mm. has got its own problems. I mean, the Labour Party had loads of of cases which it did not adequately deal with. Um, I certainly remember from from my time in politics, I mean, sexual harassment was sort of rife. It was was happening left, right and centre across every single political party. It was just, you were just sort of expected to suck it up sometimes literally as part of the job, you know, it's just... <laughs> I, just I, I wasn't going to make that joke about that phrase. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I, I sort of yeah. think, I think what's quite, I mean, and don't forget, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon had the most Herculean row with Alex Salmon over his own, um, you know, allegations of, of misconduct and, and the inquiry and things like that. So I don't know, I think the SNP cannot say that it's better than anybody else but to be absolutely honest i don't think any, i don't think anyone political i think you have to be very careful with all the sexual misconduct stuff about trying to sort of be like we are the virtuous ones because that that there's no political part there's no organization which is virtuous on this because obviously you're broadcasting now you do your show on times radio which i recommend highly at the weekends it's a I mean, I appear on it frequently doing the comedy panel. It's, it's a great mix of like, because obviously your contact book is amazing, you know, the people that you can get on the show. But you also know loads of comedians as well. So it's a great, it's a great listen. But, you know, a lot of, everyone has their, their, their bias. How do you navigate balance? You know, when you got on someone, you go, I fucking hate this story. But, you know, you have to, you have to <laughs> interview them or, or if you're particularly, fre- you know, particularly friendly or, or positive about a, a more left-wing politician, how do you navigate it? And have you ever been sort of told off or taken aside or given a heads up like of, of certain objectivity levels that they want you to hit? It's a great question because I think when when I first started doing the job and I got hired, I think there was a bit of a nervousness around me because, you know, I'm clearly a Labour person 
and I had worked, you know, for the party for, for a long, long time. And so it was made clear to me that, um, and I, I sort of appreciated this, that the, the chat was, nobody's expecting you to sort of pretend to be something you're not. You write many newspaper mm. columns. I tweet a lot. You know, I don't keep my counsel to myself. I'm, I'm pretty out there. But my boss has said to me, look, be fair with people that you're having on because it's just not going to be a good listen. It's not going to be sort of a, a, a good experience for, for the listener. If all the, the left-wing people you have on, you give a really, really easy ride to, and all the right-wing people, you suddenly suddenly morph into Julia Hartley Brewer. Like, it's just, you know, it's that's just not going to be... So I think that was good advice. So because it's a Saturday show and it is a bit more relaxed, my view is I am not there to be Jeremy Paxman. I'm not there to try and pretend to be like, hi, I'm like trying to ape the, the Today programme and I'm trying to like mm. channel my Nick Robinson. That's sort of not who I am. And I think... Have you ever said, but minister? Have you ever said that? <laughs> or, but first minister? <laughs> That's the sign, You second me. Um, yeah. No, and actually the nice thing is, it's like I sort of just... Because I do a lot of events where I chair things. And also I am, I am quite curious. Like I have been very critical of my own party. I've been so critical of my own party. The worst trolling I get on Twitter is not from the right. It's not from conservatives. It's from the left. Well, so, I mean, this is a, a very interesting thing to discuss. I mean, that is because I know, look, I work in and around politics a bit. I work in and around comedy a lot. Women who talk about politics online definitely get more shit. It's just, just a fact. People can take it from me. It's an absolute fact. And, and so, yeah, you're in that pincer movement, really, where you, you get the right wing guys that might, you know, all the far right guys might bring up your, your background. You I, know what getting, I, mean? I get called Shamima Begum a lot. That doesn't even make sense. I know. <laughs> it's like, this is my view. If you're going to do your racism, get it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually from Assam, like she's from Bangladesh, like get it right. Yeah. Come on, mate. You know, you're not putting the effort. And then you get these, these hard left guys that for some reason, their, their, their moral political certainty sort of, they think gives them a hall pass for sexism. It's really weird. Oh. You got you, these guys who literally have shit in their bios they go, stupid little girl. Yeah, oh, God, completely. <laughs> or, or, or my favourite ones from, like, because, as I say, I get it, like, from, from both sides. I mean, getting trolled by Lawrence Fox was quite an experience. I mean, the, the kind of, the, the getting trolled by Nigel Farage and, and Lawrence Fox was literally, like, sort of three days out of my life. I'll never get back. But the, but that, that does go for your left-wing girl guides badges, though, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> I'll tell you the thing about the left is, though, they put a shift in, right? What, 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 mm. I mean, it's like a full-time, like when they come after you, it's like a full-time job. I've now probably just opened the door for like a full-on trolling now. I've just no, dropped Very reasonable listeners, I get. Very, very, very balanced. <laughs> but, but the classic thing they do is they will go back through every single tweet you've ever done and unearth something, sometimes just to reply and they'll be like, this you. As like, you know, oh, the this, you. this you, this you. I am sick, and I think having worked in politics for 20 years, I mean, I've worked in politics since 1997, this kind of absolutely idiotic kind of cartoon footballization and polarization and everything being about a sort of tribe in politics, like a sort of black-white, mm. that has really done massive damage. Like I am on it. I know it's very centrist, you know, spinster aunt, but I'm like on a mission to kind of bring back a bit Is of... That a th 
We is know, that a thing? Centrist like spinner on? Like, or someone's like, oh god, you're so, so, someone's like, oh, you know, centrist dads, and then someone's like, centrist mom to me, and then someone's like, oh, actually, you can't say that because she actually doesn't have any children. So that's actually she is a bitch, but that's actually been a bit rude to her. So like maybe sort of like, <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, fine, I'll be. The, let's just do it accurate. I'll be your centrist spinster aunt if that makes everyone feel better about themselves. Um, but like, I just think, and not, but but I'm, you know, what is what I what what I what I love doing about my show is that I do get on people from all different sort of views. So, for example, I used to have loads of beef with John McDonald. He came on my show this weekend. We had a great mm. chat because actually, John McDonald, I disagree with him on loads of things, but he's got some really interesting views. He was actually very interesting about Keir Starmer and the strikes. Um, I have lots of conservatives on, you know, my show as well, and. It's- Keir Starmer and the Strikes does sound like an indie band that just played Glastonbury. <laughs> <laughs> just on, if we're doing like questions like that, just one one to finish. You know, you, you mentioned doing your the big political interviews. Who would be the fantasy one, alive or dead? If you had sort of like a proper grown up journalistic chat, who who would you love to interview? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would love to interview Barack Obama. Yeah, I'd love to interview him because. A, I mean, I'm a huge, he looks like he smells amazing. Oh my god, fragrant masculinity, and then you can just some, tell that he oh, smells. He just smells so good, but also he's like he's really suave, but he's also like can do good boy things. Like, do you remember that time when he sort of caught a fly just with his like hand? Yeah, it was like that's amazing, and like and he can shoot hoops and all this kind of stuff. So I'm basically I'm swooning <laughs> with Barack Obama, but he is a great example for somebody like me who is a great liberal and a great progressive. You know, I wept with joy that night that he got elected. I just, you know, in fact, I was with this great organization, Operation Black Vote. You know, we all watched Jesse Jackson, the tears streaming down Jesse Jackson's face. We were all crying. It was an amazing moment for progressives. And yet you kind of look at Barack Obama's time and it actually wasn't this huge advancement for progressives, if anything. Mm what happened and not blaming Barack Obama for this, but the results were not great. We've got Donald Trump, but there was this huge backlash. I'm having lots of conversations with people who are asking the question, why didn't he codify road versus way when he was in Mm. um, Wade, when he was um, president, I would love to speak to him candidly about how his time, his two terms and what it was really like on the inside and whether he looks back and wishes that he had been more, radical and done more i mean you say that aisha and i think that those are questions that you really want to ask within you <laughs> just on a hunch you get in the room you smell that incredible aftershave that probably isn't even available on the open market <laughs> and he just says hello aisha and then you just go oh my god i just want to say everything you did was fuck it and, and then the producers look at you like what the fuck and you got them in the ear going ask him some challenging questions you can't ask him about what aftershave he uses aisha Oh. I'll be like, <laughs> or if I'll be like, Bright, is that amber or sandalwood? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet you're good at DIY as well. Anyway, <laughs> Michelle is one lucky woman. Listen, Aisha, we didn't even get through half of the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about here. So I'd love to have you back on uh, at some point uh, in the near future. And just before you go, is there anything I should be uh, sort of directing people towards of yours? Obviously, there's the book, there's the Times Radio show. Um, I am going to the Edinburgh Festival. I'm taking my comedy panel from Times Radio um, to the Edinburgh Festival. I'm going to be there from the 8th to the 14th of August. It's called State of the Nation politics power and tractors how we continue to lose the plot and uh, your good self will be joining me um jeff i will i'll be doing i'll be i was gonna say i'll be doing you on the 13th you can't <laughs> say that stuff anymore and then i'll be doing ian dale. Mad, it, jeff? <laughs> i'll be doing ian dale on the 14th oh. so you know 
non-binary. I'm, I'm a bit like Harry Styles. Um, Aisha, Hazarisha, up, up the Burj Khalifa with Queen, Queen Latifah. Thanks for appearing on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, I hope you enjoyed all that with Aisha. I mean, just such an interesting person who's worked in so many different spheres within politics and comedy. So obviously give her a, f- a follow on the socials and do check out her show on uh, on Times Radio and anything else that she's got going on. Okay, we've got a couple of really interesting letters here. So let's dive into that. Uh, so the first, I'm going to um, sort of make this one anonymous. You didn't tell me to, but I think given the nature of it, this was, I asked last week, about people that have been complained about work, because I do think that that is more of a thing now. You get that quiet little prick who sits in the corner, he's got no power, and every you know every six months they'll escalate a complaint. Uh, and so this happened to one of my listeners, and it's it's a, a long message, but just to sort of pray see it is there's a, he has to deal with someone in his US team um, who's always been who doesn't like in person conversations, right? So he's exactly the kind of person. Uh, that I'm talking about here and and this person uh, suggested that they arrange a, cl- a call with the client to avoid Chinese whispers uh, which I, I think you can all guess where this is going now in 2022 right I would imagine that the person that used the phrase Chinese whispers wasn't thinking about racial stereotypes was just thinking about a word that was used in the playground uh, when, when you're a kid you know so uh, of course he got complained about and one thing that I was um what I thought was funny about this is the person that wrote to me, he, he's going to double down now. He's going to start using as many sort of uh, national stereotypes as he can. Like there, so he's going to say, tell to this person, he's going to tell this person that all his requests, they're all Greek to me. Uh, I don't want my customers to be subject to the Spanish inquisition. And I feel like my latest negotiation feels like a Mexican standoff. Uh, can you think of any other similar phrases that will hopefully push the little snowflake over the edge? Um, it's all Dutch to me. Uh, oh, pardon my French. <laughs> you should just keep going with it. You should also say throw a paddy, because I don't know if that's officially racist now, but I, I, I suspect that throwing a paddy has some sort of uh, basis in uh, <laughs> Anglo-Irish conflict. All right, let's do another quick um, letter. Right, this is from Roy Burdett. Who's a Patreon? Uh, if you send me letters, you can send me letters through pay, messages through Patreon, which I'm very likely to see. If you send emails, what most people think, uk at gmail.com. I also check those. This is the exact kind of thing I want from the letters. Uh, Roy says, Hi, Jeff. My wife, ever since we've been together, it takes forever to order the food in a restaurant. There's never been a single time we've been out when she's been ready to order when the waiter comes over. She'll always ask for some more time. I'll sit there with my stomach rumbling. She can sometimes take 20 minutes or more to decide. Drives me crazy, but if I mentioned it, I would end up having a row or ruining our meal. Uh, any suggestions? Cheers, Roy. Well, I mean, first up, there's a thing that, that women do, and I would call it toxic femininity. Is The reason that you don't call her out is because previous examples of, of conflicts that have escalated. Basically, she's ahead of you in the nuclear arms race. So every time there's something like this, you have to go, right, do I really want to ready trident for this is is this worth it um i'm totally on your side it's one of my biggest bugbears when you go to restaurants and you get particularly you know you get might have a mixed group but the women are catching up and they're talking and stuff like that and it's not just that they're not ready to order when the waiter comes over they often make a real play of it like it's a virtue like we, don't, we haven't even looked at the menu yet what are we like talking and we've got so much to say what a sociable group of people we are i'm like no okay Talk comes after, I can't relax till I know food is on the way. So what can you do? 
Well, there's a couple of things. One of the things you could do is look online at the menu. Look online at the menu. And then if she, she declines then, you can say, you, you enjoy this. This this is a power play. Get the menu. Get it ordered up front. Or, or I guess, you could kind of make it look bad in front of the waiter. That's another way of going. Go, oh, darling, he's very busy tonight. I don't... Doesn't really need to be coming back here twice. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit self indulgent. Or just go. You could go thermonuclear and just set like a clock. Just just pull your wristwatch up and go. Right, three minutes, or we're having McDonald's. There you go. <laughs> three minutes, we're having McDonald's. That's right. You got all doled up for tonight. See how that's gonna feel when you're sitting stuck in a queue at a fucking drive-through. Right, you got three minutes. Okay, thank you everyone uh, for listening. Thank you for all the reviews that you do for this podcast. Leave those iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can. I'll be reading out some of those next week. And until then... Uh...